0: Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed, healthier, and of course I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, Anna Vicino. I'm Peter Tilden. How are you guys? Doing
1: great. Fantastic. Today we're going to be talking about a few things. Fetterman went to the hospital for a depression after a stroke. We're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss Bruce Willis's condition, his disease. I think I'd love to get some clarity on that, and I'm sure other people would like to know too.
0: And in this week's This Just Happened segment, a huge development concerning the opioid epidemic. Plus, a caller is calling about an interesting medical story. that has been out there for about two weeks, and they want to know if it's a hoax or not. So we'll hopefully provide that answer. So David, let's start with Fetterman. The man had a stroke, and then you hear he checked himself in for depression, non-medical observation. It, I, we all, all had, unfortunately, people in our lives have had strokes and different degrees of impairment. I can't imagine the added pressure for Fetterman, because there's shame associated with it too. This guy gets a stroke, and then he has to debate, and he has to be as publicly out there, I think, as anybody has been immediately after a stroke. So... I'm sure that adds to the depression, but David, in in preparing for the show, I didn't realize the extent of the depression that comes with, with stroke because you don't try you don't think, wow, it's got to be impairing, but also what's the biological?
2: that's the big issue. What's the biological end into this? So those issues are very important to understanding this, but I think one of the things that's important in this story is that Senator Fetterman did have a history of depression. Uh, So this was not a new. This this was an exacerbation of an underlying condition. So people that go into an injury like this that have that history are certainly not only predisposed, but they're going to likely have a much worse time. Got it. Um, The biology of this is that there's a tremendous inflammation that's created with the stroke, and that inflammation goes throughout the tissues of the brain. That inflammation disrupts what we call the blood-brain barrier. The brain is protected by this blood-brain barrier. It's some sort of saran wrap around the brain that keeps bad guys out, but that gets disrupted so things can come in that shouldn't. And in fact, we actually can treat depression with anti-inflammatories. We've been playing around with that for the last couple of years. There are a lot of metabolic changes that happen after a stroke. Uh, There are changes in iron and electrolytes, and so there are other things that happen outside of the brain that aggravate this. The psychological issues are pretty obvious, actually. I mean, there's social isolation. There is an impaired ability to communicate. Also, if there's physical impairment, there's Another problem with physically engaging with people. So it's not a simple process and it's not at all uncommon. There are treatments for this. One advantage that the senator has is that he has access to mental health treatment. The biggest problem in our country is access for people that are underserved and underprivileged, but the specific treatments, they use the same medicines that we use for the SSRIs for treating depression. There are two that seem to have come to the top. One is Lexapro, one is Paxil. Those seem to have proven the best. We also use behavioral therapy with CBT CBT is a way of interacting with the event and trying to minimize the event as much as possible by reliving parts of it, and it diminishes anxiety. There are also some other interesting things that we're using. We're using transcranial magnetic stimulation. So there is a magnetic field that you create with a little coil that you rest on top of the head, and magnetic forces are sent through different parts of the brain that are involved in depression. So there are things to do, psychotherapy, of course, but I go back to this point of access. So the senator has a much better prognosis, unfortunately, than most people that can't access this.
0: And I just read today, like right before we went on, high-intensity workout seems to work better for stroke victims for recovery than other programs. I don't know what the other programs are, but that just came across across the wire, if there was a wire, yeah.
2: And remember, Peter, Anna, there are a lot of people that have a stroke that can't walk, that lose half of their body's functioning. So although that's a good idea, I'm not sure that that's going to apply to most people that have had a stroke.
0: Got it. So if you can, if you can engage in the
2: intensity workout, wow.
1: I want to hear more about that magnetic treatment. That sounds actually kind of cool. It sounds like it would be non-invasive unless there's something I'm missing about it.
2: It is non-invasive. And you actually have these two little coils that sit on top of your head. And you position these coils to target the areas in the brain underneath that are involved in depression.
1: This is why Marvin the Martian was never sad because he had the coils... But the magnetic thing. That's a bad, but that's the teletubbies,
2: bad. The teletubbies have that also,
0: or is
1: that just an antenna? The teletubbies have it too. They're very joyful for that precise reason. Listen, my mom struggled with bipolar depression for her mm. entire life and she would check herself in to the hospital for electroshock. So when I hear about something like that, I go, Oh,
0: did the electroshock work for periods of time for her?
1: Mm, I can't, I can't answer it. Cause I don't know. I don't, from yeah. what I observed, I would say no, but I'm not, I couldn't answer for her.
2: You need multiple treatments with electroshock and oh, yeah. electroshock therapy is associated with a high level of memory loss. So not only do you have to do this regularly, but you do have that, that risk for losing your memory. Wow. I have personally seen it work in a couple patients yeah. where they, they came out of it. Uh, there has to be maintenance for that. It's horribly scary to watch, but it does help.
1: Well, speaking of memory loss, why don't we move on to the Bruce Willis story, which obviously I've loved Bruce Willis, but like everybody loves Bruce Willis. He's a national treasure, let's be honest. So it was really sad news to find out that he has. I I heard it was called aphasia, but now I'm seeing frontotemporal dementia. And so I would love it if you had some clarity on that because he's lost his ability to speak and understand speech. Am I interpreting that correctly?
2: Yes. And the frontotemporal is a long word, but that just relates to the anatomic areas in the brain where your speech center and your comprehension comes from. That's where we see this this illness. That's where we see the degeneration of the neurons and the pathways in that area. It's a genetically acquired disease in probably 25% of people. And the only way to prevent this is none but the way to look at this is if you have a family history of this you have to be aware of it and at this point we don't have any treatment for this which is part of the problem there are a number of these other neurodegenerative problems that we can see from very similar mechanisms the at-risk population however can show up at any point you can show up in your, believe it or not, your early 20s, uh, your 40s, and even beyond. It's a very sad illness. It's like some of the Cunnington's chorea is another illness in the same genetically acquired conglomerate of neurodegenerative diseases. To me, what was interesting about the Bruce Willis story was that here's Bruce Willis, he has this frontotemporal dementia syndrome. He's garnishing some uh, awareness and certainly some sympathy, as he should. And then you have someone like Fetterman that we just spoke about that has a mental illness. And what happens to Mm -hmm. Fetterman? He gets Mm -hmm. attacked by his uh, his fellow politicians. There is a stigma that remains with mental illness. And it's a very different issue to try to treat mental illness. And it's a reason that a lot of people don't seek treatment. And it's another reason that people that do get treatment isolate and they have other problems from that. So I, I just think it's an interesting comparative this week in the news between these two illnesses and these two high-profile people. Hey, David, with the diagnosis, because you look at Willis, like I said, somebody has been in your life
0: for, what, 30 years? We've seen him. You, you, you know, you get intimately involved with these people in their lives, et cetera, and then you see him diminish this way. So they got a new analysis. They had more intel or he diminished more so they could give this diagnosis that it changed from aphasia to this. Was that because it progressed? And also early signs. Is this one of those things where you, you can't, you're looking at something that you see every day, but you can't connect the name to it? Is that like a given for this disease?
2: Yes. And it is a progressive illness. And Peter, you're exactly right. That's what happened. He started out with some aphasia and that progressed. It's very sad. When Alzheimer's drugs were being created, I had a couple that I took care of, elderly couple. They were in their 80s and they both had Alzheimer's and they had a wonderful life together. I knew them long before the symptoms developed and they were placed in a apartment together and they had some help, but they were together and the drugs came out. And the first medicine that came out, I gave to both of them. And what, <laughs> what happened was is that the guy woke up from the medicine, he got better. He recognized the wife. The wife had no Ooh. idea who he was. And he's coming after her in many ways, primarily right, just right, to communicate, wow. but in oh. other ways. And these two people that were living and coexisting in harmony, all of a sudden now were bitter enemies.
0: After all this and time. And so
2: the drug, although it helped a little bit, created wow. some other problems. You know
0: what I say, and it's a tragic joke. I, I yearn for the old days when you died at 34 or 40 from a
2: paper cut or something, <laughs> and we never got to Alzheimer's. Nobody lived long enough to experience Alzheimer's. So it is a progressive disease, and it goes from what he had as aphasia to now his inability to communicate at all.
0: Let's do some good news. This just happened this week. They're calling it a game changer for the opioid ep- epidemic. And how, how does that work, David? What, what's, explain that if you can.
2: So there's a drug on the market called buprenorphine. It's been around for over 20 years. And it's a drug that one of three drugs that we use to treat opioid use disorder. Right. One one is methadone. Buprenorphine is another one. And the third one is naltrexone. So what these drugs do, except for methadone, methadone is an opiate. It's just a long acting opiate. So you give people methadone. And this was the first one on the block right. that would last in your system for a few days. So people had no interest in craving more opiate because they mm-hmm. had opiate on their receptors. After three days, they needed more methadone. But this was a standard therapy for quite a few years. And then along came buprenorphine. And buprenorphine does two different things It is called an agonist and antagonist so it suppresses some opiate receptors those are the opiate receptors that uh, involve craving and it stimulates other receptors so that anxiety is diminished and you have two different processes going on at the same time so with this you're not getting euphoria. So people aren't craving it. You are getting mild pain relief. You are getting anxiety relief. So this became a a, a game changer at the time. What they did at the time, and I think this was in 2006, uh, in order to prescribe buprenorphine, you had to take a course. And it was an eight-hour course, and it was somewhat rigorous, wasn't terrible. You had to pass the exam. And if you did, you got a license. And with that license, you were first allowed to treat 10 patients. And then it was 25 patients. There
0: was a limit, got it.
2: Because very few people went and got this license. So the ability to uh, provide buprenorphine treatment was limited. And most people didn't want to do the training. A lot of people don't want to treat addiction, period. And so the government, this is I'm bringing us up to This article and and what's changed, the government has decided that they would just allow any doctor to prescribe buprenorphine. So that means on one level that there's more access to prescribing this drug. On another level, it's not a simple drug to prescribe because Uh. you're dealing with people that that have narcotic uh, dependencies. Withdrawal happens if you're not careful in how you prescribe this. There's a transition period from someone coming off of their last opiate pill and starting the buprenorphine. So it's a very complicated medicine. Wow, and but what's, I don't... what's
0: the liability, David? Isn't that increased in my liability for I didn't take the course and I don't know what I'm doing, and it's like my third addict, holy, holy mackerel.
2: That's a liability, but I just don't think we're gonna see a huge onslaught of people that are doing this. The other thing about buprenorphine and methadone and naltrexone these are band-aids. These are treating the symptoms of opiate addiction or any addiction. What we're missing in this formula is treating the mental illness that underlies all of these dependencies, self-soothing syndromes. And until we do that, we are not going to have a really good chance of curing people for this and reducing that 92% recidivism rate. For that, you need mental health professionals. There aren't enough of those. And you need people that are willing to treat addiction. And treating addiction is a very difficult process. You need other doctors to help you. It's a team event and compliance is always an issue. The family dynamics are often horrible. So the support for someone going through this is challenged. But until we do that, all these other treatments, in my opinion, are Band-Aids.
1: So is this going to be like the Paxlovid thing where it's going to be in short supply? Or is it it the kind of thing where we can never get any of the drugs we need? You can't get the Adderall. You can't get the Paxlovid. You can't get the opiate replacement to get you off of drugs. What can we get? Pepto-Bismol and what else?
2: It's going to be available. It has been available. I actually think the drug company is really upset because it is available and not enough people are prescribing it. So I think we go back to an apple a day theory. That's probably as good as we've ever gotten with preventative health care.
0: What's really scary is the 92% recidivism rate. I mean, it's so disheartening with all the advantages and the technical advances we make with cancer treatment. Isn't that the Alzheimer thing is heartbreaking? That they've somehow, as big as it's getting and as much money as it can generate, you figure they'll be chasing that and, and not a whole lot of movement that we know of. And then this, this is kind of, Kind of scary and kind of sad. And,
2: and that goes back to the point that there isn't one treatment for addictive disorders, that this this affects potentially the opioid population. Also, you can't stay on this drug. After a while, you have to stop this drug. It, it interferes with your ability for pain management. So a young person on this drug eventually is going to have a toothache. And, and going there to you go.
1: So this week's caller is a really interesting thing. I was fascinated by this. Um, We're going to let the caller say their piece, but um, I'm eager to hear what you have to say.
2: Hey, Dr. Kipper. I heard the story about the patient who got an Irish accent after surgery, and I wanted to know if it's actually possible or is that story a hoax? It is a medical condition. It's also something very popular in comedy clubs. If you look at the data on this problem, there's 100 cases.
1: Okay, so it is a medical condition. There are 100 cases.
2: Yes, it's not a common medical condition, and it's a brain injury to the frontal lobe in the speech area. Usually, again, uh, it can follow any other illness. It can follow a stroke. It can follow a surgery, trauma to the area. It's commonly associated, and again, not common because it's not a common condition, but there are several cases associated with what we call a perineoplastic syndrome. And that is a collection of symptoms that develop before a cancer is actually identified. So it's these are related to the cancer. Things happen. So if the cancer ends up in the brain in these areas, this is a forerunner of what the cancer is going to be. We've actually identified, this is interesting, we've identified three specific cancers that this condition is related to: testicle, breast, and lung when it is associated with the cancer. So we have biomarkers for these cancers. They're antibodies that are associated with these cancers that we can pick up in a blood test. So if somebody shows up with these, if you test for these antibodies and you find that they have the antibody for the lung cancer or the breast cancer or the testicular cancer, then you start looking at those organs and trying to stay ahead of the game. But the symptoms themselves this can last This can last for 18 years. It can last two months, but it, there's a huge spectrum. There's a very interesting case of a Norwegian woman in the early 40s that developed a German accent, and she lived in this small village, and this was during the war, and so she was labeled as a Nazi spy, and she was ostracized, and she, she didn't do well with the German, but it's again, it's not that common, but we do see it.
1: Is it like one of those things that he had to have heard an Irish accent in order to ah, be able to that... know how to do it? Like were, were Irish people like, hey, listen, you mispronounced, you know, your A's are not quite Irish enough. Like, Or was it like really flawless? Like what should he win an Oscar?
2: When he was in his 20s, and I think this happened much later, he was much older now when this happened. He had visitors at his home that were Irish and were speaking that language. They weren't there a long time. It never came up in conversation ever again. These people never came back into their lives. So to answer your question, I don't know, but he did have some exposure to that language.
0: You wonder if it's genetic, the roots of your family come from If there's some insane association or like you, you dream in... Yeah, languages you well, appear to. When I was
1: to. in 7th grade, we had a German foreign exchange student. I learned how to make schnitzel, but I didn't learn how to do an accent from him. So if anybody needs a good schnitzel recipe, I'm here for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful ending to a... You know what? Couldn't end it better <laughs> than with Anna's schnitzel recipe. A truly go to her website. Go to bizarre. her website, <laughs> give you a website. She's got sauces. She's got all kinds of great gluten-free recipes. And I'll tell you Kuten what, a knocked out. you're going to be dreaming about schnitzel. And you may just wake up not only tomorrow speaking German, but in a pair of lederhosen, and you're going, I don't recall buying oh, these. That's how good your schnitzel only is. Hope. Go ahead. What's your website?
1: It's com.
0: There you go. And if you eat too much schnitzel and it's bread and fried food, you should know about brain chemistry. That's not even a That's great right. segue, but it's a good segue. Dr. Kipper has an amazing book. David, why don't you tell us about why you wrote the book?
2: I wrote the book in part because I've been for so many years having trouble getting people to change their lifestyle issues, whether it was losing weight, exercising, stopping smoking, quitting their drugs. No matter how much time you spent with people and how clear you made the consequences, it just never happened. So I started looking at these different behaviors and I saw that these behaviors were related to certain brain chemical imbalances. So connecting those dots allowed me to understand how we and and where this came from it's genetically inherited and we don't get to choose which chemicals were imbalanced in but once you understand that you can understand how to actually get a handle on treating these different behavioral problems by by addressing those behaviors
0: book is called override check it out and by the way just to recap today we talked about fetterman and depression and the fact that it's a big biological component Poor Bruce Willis is diagnosed not with aphasia now, but it has appeared to progress at this point. The X waiver for buprenorphine. Did I say that right? Buprenorphine, David? Mm-hmm. Yes. Make it easier, easier to prescribe, but it's still, still got to be careful with it. And then, of course, the patient that started speaking a different language. After surgery, wrap it up here. Will you give the closing credits?
1: Thank you for today, Dr. Kipper, Peter Tilden, producer Lori, and thank you for listening. And if you guys are sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And if you have a medical question you need answered, go to bedsidematters.org and send it to us. And we'll see you on the next episode.